Coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss Elf on the Shelf, Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 research on the new variant of the Mirai botnet. Next up, Seize the Zero Day. Apple issues fixed for zero-day flaws using spy attacks against Kaspersky. And our fun game, Gold Guidance and Grievances. Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 159, recorded on June 26, 2023. I'm your co-host, Kelsey, nothing botnet, LaBelle. With me, co-host Tim, not my cup of IoT, Helming. And last, but certainly not least, Ian Russian to update the big board Campbell. <laughs> welcome, hello, hello. welcome, welcome. There are lots of big boards that could be updated. <laughs> a little bit of a noisy weekend news-wise in that region of the world, one might say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been fun for someone that watches news exhaustively. I <laughs> I might have run out of coffee. Yeah, so for for people in the future listening to this, we're uh recording this a couple days after this well, people are calling it a maybe an attempted coup in Russia. I think that's probably putting it a little bit strongly, but that interesting uh, started and then stopped March on Moscow by the Wagner Group and all the strange things that ensued after that. And now they're in Belarus, and I don't know what's happening next. But it might not be a coup. I don't think anyone knows what will happen next. This is better than... Uh... Well, maybe that's a little callous to say it's better than Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> it's more suspenseful than Netflix. We could put Okay, it fair. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's could be anywhere from well, nothing really changes to the end of Putin. So Yeah. We'll see. Future when you're listening to this podcast, you will know more hopefully than we do right now. <laughs> Correct. Yes, indeed. Well, let's let's talk about some security stuff. Um, so Elf on the Shelf. Since March 2023, Unit 42 researchers have observed a variant of the Mirai botnet spreading by targeting tens of flaws in D-Link, um, Zell, and Netgear devices. And did I say that properly? It's um, I think Zixel or Zixel. 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 I've, heard, I've heard both of those Data, pretty, data Zixel, Zixel. pretty commonly. Yeah, it sounds like I a really good medication if you're suffering from constipation. Zyxel. That's right. Ask your doctor if Zyxel is right for you. No. <laughs> Symptoms include death. <laughs> <laughs> Symptoms include DDoS. DDoS. <laughs> oh, gosh. The Mirai also sounds like a pharmaceutical company. Or a car. Or a car. Actually, there might have been a car called the Mirai at some point. Mirai means mm. future in Japan. Oh. In, in Japan. Well, in Japan, in only in Japan. So, yeah, <laughs> that's right. It means it in Japanese, but if you're not in Japan, it still doesn't mean that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, there's probably a car called that. Oh, well, Tim, you mentioned in our internal Slack that we haven't discussed Mariah in a while. Can you just remind us, provide a brief overview of what we've covered previously and just give people a, you know, a TLDR? Yeah, Absolutely. So DDoS is generally not one of the threat types that gets a huge amount of attention, um, and there's a number of reasons for that. So generally, these attacks are more in the matter of nuisances than destructive, and they also tend to be temporary. So the DDoS it happens, it gets mitigated, it passes. And I don't, in saying all this, I don't want to minimize the amount of pain that they can cause for organizations that targeted by the DDoS, but they don't tend to have a super lasting impact the way when you think of phishing or ransomware or espionage campaigns or the supply chain attacks like uh, solar winds and so forth. Um, but if you look at the history of DDoS, which if you go back far enough toward the Big Bang, it was just DOS, denial of service, um, but it has been distributed for many years now, uh, you'll see that it's just been this constantly escalating thing. The numbers get higher and higher. We regularly see new 
records set for the total amount of traffic that a particular attack involves or how many hosts have been recruited into the botnet to mount that attack and so forth. And so against that whole backdrop, we have Mirai, which is, I think, probably the best known DDoS botnet at this point. It's very large and it's pulled off some fairly impressive attacks. I mean, there's there's this thing with DDoS attacks over the last few years where obviously they suck, like all attacks suck, but there's this there's almost admiration that you see for how much traffic they're able to send, you know, when that when it when a terabyte was first hit or a terabit, I should say. Um ha. that becomes a pretty big uh that's a fairly impressive number. Um and it's just gonna keep on going up from here. But anyway, Mirai's the I think the most famous DDoS botnet. Tim are you familiar with nature's DDoS? Oh, probably, but say more. Good old solar eclipse. Oh, yeah. That's nature's DDoS. Well, I don't know if it's distributed. Just a DOS. Because, Excuse me. Pardon, pardon. <clears throat> that's right. It's the moon is the only party involved in doing the denial of, of sun. Your denial of sun. Know. Well, you could the say that the, yeah, we get, we get denial of sun attacks in Seattle for most of the year. And that's a cloud problem, as so much of security is. Ah, ah cloud problem. Ah, ah. <laughs> well played, Tim. Well played indeed. I do feel I, like... I shouldn't complain. It's beautiful in Seattle right now. So the mitigations are working. <laughs> Except for uh, our director of research, or VP of research, who is very sunburned right now. He might yeah, disagree. Um, <laughs> I also feel like there's a movie to be made called The Host, but it's like a, a DDoS or a DOS movie. It's of an alien movie, The Host. Mm. Um, lots of ideas. Plenty of time. Will execute, certainly. Um, <laughs> So going back uh, to present day, what is the goal of the new variant of this botnet? Is the focus still IoT devices mostly? Or? Sure. So when we're talking about DDoS botnets, there are actually kind of two levels of targets. So one kind of target, which is what this article is talking about, is targeting the devices that are going to be the bots in the bot army. So what you're trying to recruit. And then, of course, the other level of target is who you're going to DOS when the time comes to pull the trigger on that attack. Um, and so this article is about the uh, a variety of different vulnerabilities that this new variant is targeting in order to recruit more of these devices into the botnet. And it does kind of underscore the terrible, really lamentable state of security for IoT devices, which all of our listeners probably have one form of or another in the form of uh, like home routers are one of the things that are most commonly targeted, of course, because they are <laughs> by definition exposed to the internet. And unfortunately, those interfaces that are exposed to the internet are not always as protected as we want them to be. No. <laughs> I know. It's shocking, uh, it's isn't it? not true say it's not true <laughs> everybody go unplug your uh router but not until after you've downloaded the complete episode that you're listening to <laughs> oh man well tim i'm curious how do you think these actors have been avoiding detection well kelsey do you want the snarky answer or the helpful answer both always oh of course <laughs> all right the snarky answer is that nobody looks at their damn IoT devices to see if there are uh, rogue processes running on them. That's not quite true, uh, but it's more true than probably we'd like it to be. So one could argue that in a lot of cases, they probably don't have to do a whole lot to cover their tracks. But in this case, um, the, once the uh, bot client has executed on the targeted device, the shell script downloader deletes the client executable file to help avoid detection. Um, so for the folks that are out there actually looking at these devices and scanning them and trying to keep them up to date, um, that makes their job a little bit harder. 
And that's really the goal, right? Just make it a little bit harder, a little bit more expensive. Mm, like things smart. weren't hard enough for everyone already. <laughs> no kidding. Especially in this timeline. <laughs> Where did it branch? I mean, it was what did always we do? kind of messed up, but man, I don't, well, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> it's a whole other show. <laughs> have, speaking of that, have either of you watched... There's a Netflix documentary on this idea of infinity and if it exists, talking to like physicists and mathematicians and such. No, I've heard that I show not. just goes on forever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well I have not begun. Uh, no, I've not checked that one out. It's quite interesting. I recommend it. Especially if you have mental space for your mind to be blown. Um, if you don't, it's like do watching about Black that Mirror. Once in a while. You know, there are <laughs> yeah. certain things that when parents tell their kids about it when they're little, it's just going to mess with the kid. And so the idea that the universe just goes on forever and ever, uh, is, is something that can get a little kid, at least me. I don't know if I was typical or not. Probably not. I don't know. Uh, I spend a lot of time pondering that. Uh, how, how does that work? It's like the other one is don't, don't tell little kids that light, that white, the color white is, is made of the combination of all the colors. Cause then they'll do what I did when I was like three or four and get out their finger paints and mix up all the colors waiting for it to miraculously become white. So, um, you have to really get that kid educated on the fact that you're talking about light and not reflected light through media. But I digress. I could see young Tim doing that. And that, that's a, a consistent mental image, I think. Yeah. And it's, you know, of course, it all averages out to what? Brown, right? Sort of a purpley brown, <laughs> seems like. So uh, the I, th I kept brown. thinking, man, if I just get the ratio right, it's just that's what it is. Like I could tell I had enough knowledge as a little kid to be like, all right, the ingredient mix is off just a little bit. I'm going to add like a little bit more red and all of a sudden it's going to be white finger paint. Maybe this yeah. is what branched the timeline. I was just going to say. Oh, Tim not God, mixing the colors right. Yep. <laughs> Darn it, Tim. In another oh. universe, people can't wear purpley brown. Sorry, Earth. <laughs> Sorry, Earth. You know, we all, we all owe Earth a lot of apologies. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh, well, okay. So, Tim, the article states that this Mirai variant lacks brute force login credentials capability. Um, which means that operators have to manually deploy it by exploiting the above vulnerabilities. Is manual deployment common these days? And I love the backhandedness of this as well in the article. It's a little bit like just poking <laughs> the bear a little bit, just like, mm, this is not as good as it could be. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually, I kind of wish that the article had gone into more detail about that because it can't possibly mean that they literally have to some human has to get this thing implanted on all these different devices i think i think it just means they have to trigger the process that goes out and hunts for vulnerable devices and then uh logs the thing in but um but i don't know that for sure so i i there's not quite as much detail on that aspect as i would have liked but in general we can say uh the whole idea of botnets and really of how any modern large-scale malware tends to work is it's much more automated than not because this is all a scale game for the uh, for the attackers unless you're talking about something super highly targeted you know a specific espionage event or something as opposed to a scattergun type of attack where you're just trying to get as big numbers as you possibly can Russian to update that big board as it were <laughs> If you will. <laughs> Putin in the time. Okay. All right. Okay. Here we go. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll wrap this here with the last few questions, Tim. Um, so like the article mentions, IoT devices have become a ubiquitous trend, but there are persistent security concerns. Given that the security flaws make these ripe for attack, what sorts of changes do you think should be implemented to make the safety of these devices more robust? How much time do you have? <laughs> I think there's there's quite a lot, um, but five hours were edited say, from this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if <laughs> to uh, 
be semi-serious for a minute. Um, if you look up some of the things that CISA has recommended, there's attention being paid, obviously, to the problem of IoT. And there is a rising tide of regulation. Um, the EU Cyber Resilience Act is trying to impose some rules on manufacturers, both for hardware and software. So we're starting to see a real increase in momentum for doing something about this problem. And it's about time. I mean, it was about time 20 years ago, but um, it's, uh, it is starting to get some much needed attention. And uh, I think that in the coming year, I think this will get better. Um, I think that we will start to see some changes because what happens when you look at IoT security, which is like Western civilization, it's a very good idea. Um, it is rife with not only the usual kinds of vulnerabilities that we see on more mainstream computing kinds of devices, but just unforgivable things like hard-coded root uh not just users, because you expect there to be a hard-coded root user, but hard-coded passwords for crying out loud. Um, did they think no one was ever going to find out or transmit that information onto, I don't know, let's say a globally accessible interconnected computer network? Um, so that's really kind of unforgivable. And we're going to see that change, but it's going to be really slow. And there's so many of these devices out there, and so many of them are deeply embedded and not easy to upgrade. And in some cases, the quote unquote upgrade is probably going to actually mean a replacement of the device in question. So it's a massive problem. And um, so, yeah, in the meantime, mitigations are are really important for everybody that um, that has one of these devices. And the sad part is, you know, that means whether it's one of the devices that's mentioned in this particular article or not, we hear all the time about new vulnerabilities in home routers. And I mean, I will confess that I don't log into my router all the time to uh, to update it. I, I should. But if I don't do that, um, and I know I'm not alone, as a, even as somebody in InfoSec, think about all the millions of people that don't know the first thing. They barely know you know, couldn't even tell you what a router does, except that what it does is fail often and make their internet not work. And then they have to unplug it and plug it back in again. Um, so we've got a long way to go and uh, a short time to get there. Eastbound, uh, wait a minute, I'm thinking of the wrong movie now. Anyway, did that answer your question? Yeah, my snarky response would have just been like, can we do an updated Boston Tea Party here? <laughs> The Boston um, IoT party. Boston IoT party. Steeped in technology, we are. Um, <laughs> but that was much more helpful. You could put <laughs> your informed. stamp on that one. <laughs> oh gosh. Um, <laughs> so, Tim, on this in a similar vein, my final question for you here before our hoodie ratings is: you know, what are the mitigations to protect against the Mariah variant in your in your mind? Right. So it really depends on if, if you are the owner of one of the devices that is vulnerable here, then, you know, you really need to follow up on the vulnerability and any mitigations or patches that there may be for that particular device. You know, if you start to look down the list of the vulnerabilities that are cited in this article, you see a bunch of 9.8 critical like levels to the vulnerabilities, no surprise there. Um, patches exist in some cases, don't exist in other cases. Uh, so to give some applicable, kind of broad-based, I guess, recommendations here, um, the first is to the greatest extent possible when you have an IoT device that is exposed directly to the internet because it has to be, then really go in there and, and first of all, seek any patches, firmware updates, et cetera, that are outstanding for that device and install them. Secondly, make really sure that uh, you have done all of the identity and access management stuff that you should do. So changing passwords that are any sort of administrative or root passwords, 
uh, closing down external ports. We talked in a, a couple episodes ago about a uh, an advisory that CISA put out about securing um, internet-facing management interfaces for devices. And a lot of these, when it's a home router type of device, one of these Zixel um, or TP-Link or something like that, a lot of times they have an externally-facing management interface. And sometimes your friendly ISP wants to use that to go in and figure out why your internet is not working. But uh, the trying to lock down access to the device from an external perspective to the absolute minimum that's required, least privilege, um, is one of the important things. And then in some cases, you can also protect the devices by putting them behind a firewall or some other device. It depends on whether the device is by definition one that has to sit there directly exposed on the internet or whether it's an IoT device that can sit behind a port forwarding and proxying and security rule enforcing firewall or something like that. So the it, it it really depends. There's not a one size fits all answer to this. Um, but I would encourage folks to take a look at the article that we're linking to and see if any of the devices mentioned there are in your stable. So you won't be left to your own devices. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Or maybe you are, and that's the whole problem. And that's the problem. Step one. Um, <laughs> Tim, thank you so much for the the analysis here. And let's move to our hoodie ratings. This For folks tuning in for the first time or just need a quick reminder, our scale is from 0 to 10 hoodies. 10 is very bad. 0 is neutral. Maybe just something you're laughing about with your coworker. And we're using hoodies here, playing off the cliche of um, defenders or hackers and hoodies, right? And how many it takes to solve the problem. So, Ian, let me start with you. What What is your hoodie rating for this? Uh, I'm probably going to go about a two. I, uh, it's, it's certainly widespread, which probably bumps it up a point or a point and a half, but it's not particularly sophisticated. And frankly, if our regulatory agencies or legislators had any, uh, any gumption to, we could solve a lot of these problems. So it, it it's not an unsolvable issue. It's not a sophisticated one. So I'm going to I'm going to do about a 2.5. A 2.5. Tim, would you agree what's what's your rating here? Well, keep in mind um there are a few there are a few things here to quote the Big Lebowski. This is a very complicated case, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have yous. And uh, that all contributes to the answer that I'm about to stumble through, which is that for, for one thing, don't forget that the same vulnerabilities that let somebody recruit your Zixel router into a Mirai botnet could also allow somebody potentially to take control of the device and depending on which vulnerability it is, and then have a beachhead into your own network for entirely different reasons. So the vulnerabilities themselves that are part of this are um, for individuals that have those devices potentially very critical. Um, the other unknown, this is kind of an incomplete on the, uh, on the course here, is the fact that we don't know ultimately what they're going to target as the DDoS itself, right? So how, um, how disruptive is that going to be? I don't know. We don't know yet. Um, and so it's a little hard to pin this one down, but I'm going to make it a little bit higher than Ian's. I was thinking, uh, about four. I think I feel like I give fours to a lot of things, but in this case, since Mirai is a Japanese word, I think I, I I can't remember if it's true in Japanese culture, but there are some cultures where four is considered a very unlucky number, and that just seems kind of fitting here. Hmm. Yet another place where the timeline might split. Thanks for that, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> How much worse could it get, though? <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, on that happy note, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back. <laughs> and go cry for a while. Yeah, this is a podcast. We're just going to so weep abjectly and then we'll come just back. Just have a little cup of try ironically to pull hot ourselves tea. together. Yeah, like a pair of curtains. Here we go. All right, we'll be back in just a moment for Seize the Zero Day. Stick with us. Hey. 
Heyo, security nerds, and obviously that's a compliment. We all on the Breaking Badness crew certainly consider ourselves proud security nerds. If you're enjoying this show, why not take a moment to share it with a friend or 20? And if you have another moment, a review and rating will really help us spread the 10 chocolate chip goodie love all over the series of tubes. Well, I'm not sure that sounded right. Well, anyway, we couldn't do this without you, our audience. We're so glad you're here. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. <clears throat> now, how would you describe what types of criers you are? Uh, hmm. I've never thought about that. Probably not frequent enough is is one answer. Mm, it's cathartic. Yeah. yeah, I could vibe with that. Probably not frequent enough, but when I get into it, you know, uh, 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 I just sort of let go. Yeah. yeah. Got to find your rhythm. Get your breath yeah. right through it, you know. It really messes up the breath. It does. But that's when yeah. you know you found your rhythm. When your body's like, we've been doing this long enough. Right. <laughs> we found that's out true. how to breathe. <laughs> so we can survive while having a moment of catharsis. Um, <laughs> wow, I feel like I'm I'm alone. This, I feel like I just took this to a dark place. I'll cry about it alone later. Don't worry about it. Um, no, I think catharsis <laughs> can be a very good thing. So you're fine. Okay, that's good. Maybe that's our spinoff podcast. Catharsis. Well, I was thinking the crying podcast, but catharsis is good too. We can call it true crying. <laughs> true crime <laughs> friends. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right, so seize the zero day. Apple issues fixed for zero day flaws using spy attacks against Kaspersky. So Graham Cluley wrote this article. Love Graham, big fan. Um, he writes that the zero day exploitation was to sneak spyware onto the iPhones of its middle and senior management at Kaspersky. Ian, do we know if this was successful? Well, I, I, I'd say they carpeed Kaspersky. Um, I, I'd say this was pretty successful for a while. It, it appears several dozen devices were successfully infected over a period from 2019 uh, forward. Um, they claim that network monitoring detected anomalous traffic and alerted them uh, to the infections. Uh, they then expressed some frustration about not being able to crack into the black box of iOS and do on-device analysis, uh, instead having to create forensic images and then uh, uh, conduct analysis on the forensic images instead, at which point they found more indicators of compromise. Hmm. So in the article links to Kaspersky's U.S. blog, where they discuss the background of this attack, saying it's carried out using an invisible iMessage. Can you explain what that concept is for those who don't know? Is it that color purple brown that Tim was referring to earlier? Is that is that connected? It's actually a new form of meta materials. I have a new startup you can invest in. No, no. Um, uh, <laughs> Kaspersky doesn't really explain the meaning of invisible iMessage either in their blog post or their secure list articles that I've seen. I'm kind of speculating here that the messages were filed away in the unknown sender's iPhone filter and not seen by users. And those messages utilized a zero-click exploit on an attachment that required no interaction from the user to propagate within iOS. Mm. Woof. Woof. And I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to ask you to wildly speculate later. So hold on to that feeling. Um, so it sounds like there are patches for those with iOS, macOS, and watchOS to update their devices. And it's, you know, not surprisingly strongly urged for people to follow through on those updates. What are the ramifications if you don't and find out later there's spyware on your device? Um, what would someone need to do? And if you just turn off your phone for five minutes every day, will that solve everything? I think in this particular case, the first thing to know is that no phone running iOS uh, version higher than 15.7 appears to have been successfully infected. 15.7 uh, came out in October 2022, um, and one of the defining characteristics of this malware appears to be that successful infection prevents further iOS updates. 
I admit I'm kind of astonished that Kaspersky folks wouldn't update as soon as possible and wouldn't catch on pretty quick that updates had been disabled across multiple devices. So either the story about network monitoring detecting the issue isn't entirely true, or some folks weren't really paying attention. And Kaspersky has some bright folks, so I'm kind of doubting that it's the latter. Um, uh, again, for this particular case, it's very, very unlikely that folks not associated with Kaspersky or some similar organizations were targeted with this particular malware. Most of the infection type activity I've seen on iOS devices for uh, regular people has taken the form of exploiting WebKit or Safari to hijack browser sessions, or in some cases, displays with repeated notifications or re uh, repeated windows, um, uh, usually involving JavaScript. Uh, in this particular case, it looks like uh, persistence wasn't achieved that rebooting the device caused the exploit chain to break. However, given that the phone would still be on a vulnerable version of iOS, redeploying the exploit before they updated probably wouldn't be difficult. I think in general, for, for regular folks, it's uh, really hard uh, for malware to establish persistence on iOS. And rebooting regularly is definitely good advice regardless. Not only does it um, help clear out malware, clears out some temp files, it clears out some other garbage, and the phone just generally works better. Um, as far as the more common attacks go that would be seen in the general populace, disabling scripts in Safari or ensuring that no mobile device management profiles have been installed are two more steps to take. But yeah, I, I tell everybody to, to reboot their phone at least weekly. Uh, yeah, and did you see, I'm trying to remember what elected official it was that um, made a statement, I think this weekend, about making sure one of the major protections is turning off your phone for for five minutes every night or something like that. I was noticing some some fascinating meme creation on the internet as a result of that statement. Um, I'd be too we, anxious. Yeah. What happens in that five minutes that I'm missing? No, I don't know. It feels like a trick. What are they planning? Um, the FOMO is real. The FOMO is real. You know, I was just thinking, like, if if pirates, well, there are still pirates about out and about, but if they still spoke in their special little pirate, you know, ways that they do, Apple having an eye patch, iOS, just feels like a really fun thing to say in a pirate voice. I don't know why, but it does. Arr. Arr. Because pirates say I a lot. Ah. Does that mean, do you think an Apple pirate would have a patch over their Vision Pro when it comes out? No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> do you think they could get a price break on it instead of the 3500 it's like 1750 <laughs> Well, they just steal stuff anyway, so they already get the ultimate price. Uh, Zero that's dollars. a fair point. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um... Well, here's where I ask you to speculate wildly. We haven't heard anything about who, whom, who, cool whip, um, carried out this attack. And, and Graham clearly sort of leaves it up to the, the reader to, to mull this over. What, what, what do you think's going on here, Ian? What's your interpretation? Well, Graham Cluley, in, uh, in addition to being a, uh, uh, gentleman and a scholar has a uh, excellent skill at understatement. Um, so he, along with Kaspersky, kind of play coy about it. Um, Classic British understatement. Absolutely. Um, uh, they played coy about it. Uh, the Russian Federation did not. Russian Federation officials have directly accused the U.S. National Security Agency of conducting this attack. Uh, they also claim Apple Corporation assisted the NSA. Surprisingly, they have not provided evidence for those assertions at this time. I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked. Okay, but the, we cannot overstate the British understatement there. Um, and I, I'm especially interested in the comment that a previously unknown zero-click remote jailbreak exploit for the iOS doesn't come cheap. What are some of the financial implications for bad actors to run something like this? 
So one of the ways to price things like this out is to watch the zero-day market. Um, uh, in particular, one of the companies involved, Zerodium, regularly publishes their call for exploits with uh, accompanying price lists. Last I knew, Zerodium was offering as much as $2.5 million for a zero-click iOS exploit. But that fluctuates pretty wildly um, depending on the market, depending on how many zero days are in play currently. There was actually one point where Apple uh, zero days were less valuable than Android zero days because the Android ones were becoming more rare. So the, the market fluctuates, but um, you could probably say if you were um, selling the exploit on the market, would be 500,000 to two and a half million, depending. Now, for, for an actual team, say, again, wildly speculating, engaged in espionage, um, developing something like this takes a lot of time and sophistication. And there's also some serious opportunity costs in the meantime when deciding whether to deploy it or not, whether this is the target worth burning the zero day on. Because as soon as it's out there, everybody's going to uh, know and it's probably going to be able to be reverse engineered. Um, I'd love to know the answer as to whether this deployment was worth it or not, but with dozens of phones infected across a campaign dating back to 2019, someone sure got a lot of value out of it. That's really interesting, Ian, what you're describing there with the market um, to keep an eye on. Uh, that's not something that I've heard previously, so that's that's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing all the information you shared today. And I'm really curious, I'll start with you, Tim. What would you rate this as now that you've heard, you know, Ian's excellent analysis? What do you think? I think this particular um, event is not necessarily super widespread. So it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't rate super high, but when I say the targeting against uh, Kaspersky, that is. But, um, you know, if this gets turned around to uh, the rest of us, of course, that becomes a different ballgame. And the calculus is very different and, and it becomes a higher hoodie rating for everybody involved. Right now, I'm going to say 3.5 since the affected Apple devices do seem to be, you know, as, as Ian pointed out, 15.7 came out back in October. It's now June. That's a long time to uh, be able to update your devices. Um, and hopefully people have, uh, so that mitigates the, the severity of this to me. Now, granted, there's a lot of people who have not updated their phones in forever or who can't update their phones for various reasons. And that's concerning. Uh, we don't know enough about how widely it's being exploited. So anyway, I'm going to go with about three and a half, but very curious to hear what Ian's thought is. Yeah, Ian, over to you. Wow, 3.5. This is a tough crowd. All right. Uh, I think I'm going to go with a six. And I'm going to go with a six because I'm being a little conservative here. Because uh, I think there's a lot that we don't know about it. I think it could rate higher. I think a lot of it depends on uh, if Kaspersky wasn't the direct target, um, whether it reached that direct target or not, and whether it had uh, effectiveness there before the campaign was discovered, or whether it terminated at Kaspersky. Um, so I think I'll go with a six now, but leave a little room at the top for cream and sugar. Mm, there's the delicious food reference of the day, or beverage, I should say, in this case. <laughs> That's right. We didn't have any chocolate chip goodies in this episode, so... Hey, th this is the second that. delicious reference. The first was Cool Whip. Cool Whip. That's right. You did mention Cool Whip. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. I'm going to go along with delicious there. Cool Whip is horrible. It's probably made of petroleum, but I, I can't help it. I kind of like the way this stuff tastes. It's got good texture. Like when you say it, whip, it tastes like whip. Right. And but that's cool. true. That's true. That's a very, that's a very good observation because when you, when you pronounce it whip, what are you doing? You're getting some extra air in there. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what they do with Cool Whip. Cool Nicely whip. done, Kelsey. That was <laughs> that just worked on so many levels. Tonight we all feast on Cool Whip. Put Cool Whip in my cup of coffee. That's it, the, the I, extra room well, for cream right there. In, in cocoa, like I pretty much feel like for me, it's a personal rule that if it snows, there must be cocoa with Cool Whip in it. If you don't have that, the space-time continuum does split. Um, and we've been, you know, we've been talking about that sort of thing a lot these days. Mm. I mean, these minutes. Hey, I, I'm just saying the Ghostbusters crossed their uh, uh, proton pack beam, saved the universe. So what's the worst that could happen if we're uh, splitting the timeline again? <laughs> maybe, maybe we need those guys. Maybe we can be those guys, Tim. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I need to get some of that uh, yellow and black diagonal stripey tape and put it on all the things, and then they become hazard mitigation devices. (laughs) Hey, you you know as well as I do that you put on one of those fluorescent safety vests and you can walk in anywhere. Got two of them in the closet right behind me. I don't have a clipboard, though, so I need to go buy one of those. Tim, I always love the way you describe things. Like when we'd play ping pong back at the office and you'd hit the net, you'd say, who put that that little white fence there? Right. <laughs> that really, little fence really does get in the way. That stupid little fence. Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's take our last break before we end with our gold guidance and grievances and um maybe enjoy some cool whip here yourself while you wait for us to to come right back stay with us You know, you realize if I was really evil in post-production, I could just change that. Uh, I should change what you said right there to be whip yourself until we're back. Oh, God. But I won't do that. Please, no. <laughs> <laughs> like those monks, right? The uh, That would Flagellants. walk along and yep. self-flagellate. Yeah. They were in Monty Python. Ah, uh, Monty Python. Well, let's do it. Let's play Gold Guidance. This is not so much a game, but as an opportunity to share some gold, you know, some some goodness that you've seen, some guidance, right? Like buying Cool Whip, and then a grievance. You know, what what do you uh, what's uh, upsetting you? What does not float your boat, as the kids no longer say? Um, Tim, do you want to start us off with your your Gold Guidance and grievances? Oh, sure, I'd be happy to. All right, uh, gold. Well, I the the good old U.S. government is, and this is not just CISA. It's actually um, I'm giving a shout out to the NSA, which is not something I necessarily do all that often, but um, they had a, a good guide that they published for mitigating black lotus. So um, so I like that. And then there was CISA guidance that's very apropos of the article we were just talking about, telling government agencies update those iOS devices. So um, you don't necessarily see guidance at the government level coming down to very consumer-like devices like iPhones. So I was glad to see that. My guidance also staying on the theme of phones is to turn off that phone for more than five minutes a day. I know, Ian, the FOMO gets really severe. Um, But these things are a real blessing and a real curse. And the more time we get away from them, I think the healthier we'll be. So also use that Screen Time app so that you can track just how many hours of your life you have spent doom scrolling. Uh, I did see someone on Mastodon who invented the hashtag bloom scrolling and she posts pictures of flowers all the time. I like that. So, you know, that could be my uh, secondary gold is uh, or guidance. I, Go do I, some bloom scrolling. I may have to try that, Tim. The, the lucky thing is I have two phones. 
So what I can do is just turn one off, use no. the other one for a while, and uh, oh uh, no, oh Ian, that hurts my heart. But you know, but clever, I, I will <laughs> give you that. Yeah. Okay. Turn off all of your phones for more than five minutes a day. All right. Grievance. Um, last pass. So as if they haven't had enough problems recently, um, they have had an issue with their multi-factor authentication. And uh, apparently a lot of users have been locked out of LastPass because of multi-factor problems with LastPass, um, including when they follow the suggested uh, remediation and reset their multi-factor. It apparently does not always work. I knock on wood, you know, I will say, I will admit that I'm a LastPass user and uh, I am going to be moving off of them <laughs> soon. And I haven't been hit by this, but um, i uh, that's just infuriating. And I can't imagine these days not having access to my password vault. It would be a really, really big problem. So come on, LastPass. Seconded. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Tim and Ian, would you like to end our podcast today by sharing your goal guidance and grievances? Certainly, certainly. Um, my my gold is uh, going to be a uh, well-recognized one uh, among us, and probably if you're listening to the podcast, you're aware too. But um, uh, sort of reiterating uh, the awesomeness of Graham Cluley, um, both in uh, general journalism terms and uh, security podcasting terms. Just a, a fantastic journalist in the area uh digging stuff up and thinking decent thoughts about it luckily relaying them to the rest of us so uh my gold would be uh, graham cluley and my suggestion would be to go out seek out his uh his writing and his podcast noted friend of breaking badness by the way and you know we always say that about tom hanks and some people may or may not believe that tom hanks truly is a friend of breaking badness but Graham Cluley is on record as a fan of Breaking Badness, and it's very mutual. I love some of the best two truths in a lie I've ever heard came from him. I still think about them sometimes. <laughs> All right. My uh, my guidance, I, I was originally going to do a uh, reboot your iPhone thing as well, but uh, Tim stole my thunder on that. Uh, granted, he, he has actually better advice than I did, but I, I would also tell everyone even if you're not doing it daily at least once a week make sure you reboot your iphone and uh um all the way and uh, just clear stuff out but i i also have another bit of guidance since uh since mine was already kind of taken and that guidance is always look a gift horse in the mouth um and i'll i'll shoot the link to uh kelsey but um uh, reporting last week that a bunch of military personnel, I think Navy Navy personnel in particular, were receiving unsolicited smartwatches in the mail um, just for no apparent reason. And I'm sure the intent was perfectly uh, legal and legitimate, sending them to military oh, personnel. It was uh, yeah. well-timed. How could it have been otherwise? <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, um, uh, anytime you get something free, anytime you get something discounted, always ask why. Always ask what your uh, what the uh, the organization or the company will end up doing with your data on the other end. You're not always going to know, but it's always worth being skeptical. As they say, if the product is free, then you're the product. 100%. Yeah, I remember seeing that headline, and I didn't read the article about it, but I just sort of shook my head. Like, I really hope they did not, yeah, activate those those things. But I'm sure a certain number of them did. Well, you remember a couple of years ago the Strava heat map fiasco that unmasked a bunch right. of uh, secret right. military facilities because that, people that were was... running around with their uh, Strava bracelets on and mapping their runs. Yeah, this this uh, article totally made me think of that. All right. For my grievance, I'm going to go, and I know this will surprise everybody that knows me, I'm going to go and complain about AI. Um, 
It's easy when you're doing it in audio like this because then nobody thinks you're complaining about Al. <laughs> That's nah. fair. So uh, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology uh, commissioned a study or just released the study. I don't believe it's been peer reviewed yet, but one of the uh, conclusions that came out of it was between 33% and 46% of workers on platforms like Amazon's Mechanical Turk used AI to automate work typically done by humans needed to train AI systems. So again, these are mechanical uh, uh, Turk tasks being farmed out to underpaid people to further inform AI that these uh, workers are then using AI to inform. Of course, we know technically that's going to poison data sets in all sorts of ways. Um, and these companies relying on underpaid labor, or in a lot of cases, unpaid labor for AI and machine learning uh, uh, data sets and uh, similar, have no grasp of the, uh, the harm that it's going to, that's, uh, going to end up with these uh, poison data sets they're already seeing in some of the further uh, image diffusion checkpoints when training it in um, data sets that weren't properly sourced they see degradation of the uh, ability of the model to do uh, better images and I, I, i'm not going to be surprised if stuff like chat gpt gets hobbled by the same so it's just Deployment all over the place without thinking about uh, second and third order problems. But hey, is this going to slow down the arrival of the singularity? <sighs> <laughs> and with that, it's been another great week. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, this has been a great episode. Uh, thank you both for joining and... Um, yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure. I hope everyone's having a great week. And um, we will not be back next week in observance of Independence Day, but um, you can expect to, hear, expect to hear from us very soon. So everyone stay safe out there. And um, yeah, happy Independence Day. We'll, we'll see you all soon. Ian, awesome to have you on again. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. And always great to talk to you both. Cheers. TTFN. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.